0: hey welcome to another podcast i before we get started i have two events that i want to tell you about uh the first is a webinar that i'm running and this is the first like publicly available webinar i think i've actually ever done i've done a few things for like uh private like pri- private groups and stuff like that. Um, but this is the first one I've, I've actually made publicly available. And the topic I'm going for is puppy selection and training. And I'm running that on August the 9th. And the reason I've chosen that topic is firstly, it was one of the topics that was most like demanded. It was something that people wanted to talk me to talk about because it's so relevant to me right now. I'm posting so much about the process that I'm going through with Onyx, with her training and also you know, a lot of you have followed my journey in actually getting Onyx as well. And, you know, obviously I went to Germany and there's like a big story behind it. Um, So yeah, if you want to learn about how to choose and find puppies and also how to train them, then you can join me for a webinar. It's a little bit hard for me to like direct you in this introduction as to where to go to. So I think to make this as easy as possible, I'm going to put it in the show notes. So you should be able to see like a description to this podcast and I'll try and put it in there. If not, if you go on my social media, I'm sure you can find it pretty quickly, but it will be really cool if you could join me for that. The second event I want to tell you about is here in Bristol in England. I know not all of you can make it, but if you're in the UK and you want to come and try this, we are running an event. It's just an introduction to bike drawing and scootering with Cat Le Chevalier on October the 7th. However, there are only so many tickets, so you can't wait till October to get a ticket or you're just gonna miss out. So you can find that on the Hound Plus website, that's dot com. Click on the events tab and you'll be able to find and get the tickets for that. Really cool opportunity to get involved and like learn how to start your bike touring or scootering journey which is a really fantastic way of exercising your dog, especially if you have like a, a high drive dog or a really active dog. You don't have to have a Husky, you can have any breed. Um, but yeah, it's, it's bike drawing and scootering is such an incredible activity and it's something that I think a lot of people would like to do, but maybe they're intimidated by it or they're not sure how to get into it. And that's why we're running this event uh, here in Bristol uh, in, in England. So yeah, it would be really fantastic if you could check that out too. That's on the Hound Plus website. Just go to the events tab. Right. Now, I don't want to take too long. This is a uh, podcast with Simone Muller. Before we get started, I guess maybe I should apologize. Maybe I shouldn't really, but I want to apologize for one thing. I didn't intend to release this episode immediately after the steve white podcast only because we talk a little bit about electric collars in this episode and i don't know about you but i feel like i'm getting electric collar fatigue like i'm feeling like this topic is a little done to death at this point but i couldn't talk about predation with simone and not uh not discuss this it would feel wrong to to do that so uh i apologize if you're a little bit fatigued by it moving forwards we'll be talking about a hell of a lot less but Nevertheless, really interesting conversation with Simone, and I'm sure you're going to love it. Hey, Simone, welcome
1: to the show. Hi, Nick. Thank you very, very much for the invite. <laughs> I
0: know this one has been a really long time coming because we were supposed to record this when I was running my podcast more regularly a few years ago. And actually, it's kind of funny that it ended up happening now because I feel like more recently there's been a, a like almost a resurgence in the conversation about predatory behavior maybe that's because i'm living in the uk and this is a really hot topic right now because of um the proposal to ban Mm e-collars this is like a conversation that's that's been happening a lot so i really wanted to have you on so we could discuss alternatives to e-collars and you know different solutions for for predatory chase and i'm actually really excited about this and i've been listening to a lot of your stuff and I've got to stop myself from just kind of telling your story for you. So So, uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about kind of where this started for you.
1: Yeah, it all started, oh gosh, it was in 2002 when I had my first own dog after the family dogs. I had my own dog, Malinka was her name. She was... um, we don't really know. <laughs> so um, her mom was an Australian Shepherd, but you she, from from the outside you couldn't just tell. She was she was showing a lot of herding behavior, but from the outside she was more looking like a pit bull type, maybe a little yeah delicate tip pit bull type. And she was really predatory. Um, mostly, I think by that time I didn't know a lot. I think she was quite bored. So when we were out walking in the forest, and we have a lot of forest here in Germany. Um, she always looked into the forest and when she thought, just thought, oh, there is something, she immediately chased off for maybe 100, 200 meters and then she came back. And this was quite annoying for me. And sometimes she really stumbled across wildlife, um, because there really was something like a deer or, yeah, we have boars, we have deer, some rabbits, but not in the, you know, not in the forest. And then she was gone. And this was really, really distressing for me. And I tried a lot. Even not so nice uh, measures by then. So, for example, I tried a spray spray collar on her and I tried rank reduction. (laughs) BS <laughs> because I was told by that time, first-time dog owner, not experienced with dog training, um, that this is something that uh, you should try. Your dog should always walk behind you, and stuff like that. It was so distressing for me because I know I thought this is not what I imagined my dog ownership to be like. Uh, this is not something that I want to do with my dog. That she always is there in the back and has to stay behind me. Um, yeah, so I tried a lot of things until, fortunately, it, I think it was in 2006, um, I stumbled across the first force-free protocols to keep dogs from chasing wildlife, and yeah, this was it. So so, so the, yeah.
0: the citronella spray collar actually wasn't effective for you?
1: It was to some extent, but then... Uh, I'm not a very consistent person, <laughs> so I sometimes put it on, sometimes put it off. Then there were some technical issues, battery was empty, uh, not enough spray left in the in the collar, so it was a mess. Oh, this is, like-
0: this is interesting, though, because this is a, a methodology which is kind of sold as being like, you shouldn't have to use the spray collar over and over and over again. It should be maybe you do it two or three times yeah. and then yes. you're done but yeah, that wasn't your experience. It, no,
1: it wasn't like this and now from my perspective uh, today when I look back at this it's totally clear because I wasn't being consistent here and my dog was um I always said that when she when she goes over or when she went over threshold she's not alive anymore um then she was going into a kind of berserk mode. Um she she completely ignored it. She was running through this impulse Through this spray. Um, She was shocked by it for the first time, stopped, looked, and then she said, okay, never mind, I still go. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of dogs. And this also happens with e-collars. In Germany, they are banned. Uh, They have been banned 20 years now so we get used to this we we still survive we still have dogs (laughs) we still have wives. I I
0: have really want (laughs) to I'm saving that conversation for the end of our um, towards the end of this podcast (laughs) moment because I really want to get into the ban and the effect it's had and etc but I also don't want to interrupt your flow you were just about to tell me you're just discovering the predatory substitution training
1: yes exactly so um I um discovered methods that instead of you always nagging your dog and always being the nagging factor saying no don't do that Um, stop stay behind me don't go Um, uh, I discovered methods that rather are team building measures and that work with the dog's motivation so the dog does not feel the need to To chase that much anymore. There will still be occasions when this happens and therefore you need to have really good and solid um, interrupters and I mean positive interrupters in place Um, but most of the time you don't need them. If you train properly then you don't need them very often.
0: Okay so what actually is predatory substitution training? You know what, what does it look like?
1: Yeah so um the, the predation substitute training um, protocol is not just one thing that you do. So it's not just do this one thing and then you, your dog, will be never going to chase anymore. It's rather a kind of puzzle that you put together eventually. So it is work. I have to say that very clearly. Um, it is a kind of lifestyle that you lead with your dog whenever you're out and about. So there is not a, lot, not a lot of time that you can spend on your phone and answering messages or something like this. You can still do this, but for that moment you have to put your dog on leash because you're not present in your dog's life. Um, you always have to be present with your dog and to look at what they offer you. And then you have several... Um, aspects of this training and the first and I think the most important uh, part of the training, but it looks quite boring, is uh, prevention and management. So basically you teach your dog to stay in contact with you. Um, Most of um, of the opportunities for the dog to go to chase, they happen because our dogs are somewhere in the environment and then they stumble across an opportunity to chase and they're gone. So in order to prevent this from happening, we have to stay in contact with them. And this means they have to learn to stay in a kind of parameter around you. They have to check in with you frequently, not all the time. We don't want robots to just walk next to you and look at you. We want them to engage in the environment. But then every now and then they have to disengage and check in with you. Okay. Are you still there? Yes, I'm still there. We can go on. Um, So this is a basic training. It looks super boring. Um, And this is what you basically do all the time on your walk. You stay in contact with your dog. Um, Then we have tools. I call them tools that we use um, in the moment where we come across wildlife. And I mean here not in a kind of emergency way where the deer is already running in front of you uh, for Five meters in front of you or something like this, but where you come across wildlife in a way that your dog is still manageable. So maybe they caught some scent or they saw um, an animal in a, in a distance where your dog is still in a thinking state of, of mind. And uh, in this moment, you can apply those tools. They're not really tools. You don't have anything in your hand, but you work with what your dog offers you from the predatory sequence. And the best example here, most simple example is that um, you teach your dog to follow prey with their eyes instead of their feet. So instead of giving into this impulse to run straight away, um, you teach your dog to rather stand and watch the other animal. And this feels good for the dog too, because all parts of the predatory motor pattern, I think we will talk about this later, they are intrinsically reinforcing for the dog. They release very um, uh, feel-good hormones into the body. Uh, Most of it, it's uh, driven by dopamine. Dopamine is a super, super hormone, super neurotransmitter because it, it is the same neurotransmitter that is responsible for gambling in in humans and uh, gambling can become addictive <laughs> everybody knows that you can spend a lot of money on slot machines or um uh, playing the lottery or something like this because you always think okay next time i will win next time i will make the the big catch and this is what drives um, people to do gambling and this is what drives animals, uh, especially predatory animals like dogs, to go hunting because they, even if they are not successful today, doesn't matter, next time there might be the big win out there for me. And this is why all these parts that are connected with hunting feel good for the dogs and standing and watching the animal also feels good. Their body is flooded with dopamine.
0: Yeah, I really want to um, hop back to the prevention and management stuff as well, because although that is the bit that's kind of boring, it is actually probably the most important part, right? I mean, um, especially Definitely. if you're if you're trying to prevent an issue before it begins. Um, The worst cases of predation that I've seen have been when someone has taken their dog to somewhere where they have lots of opportunity to hunt like every day for a long period of time where they've just yeah. had this become such a rehearsed behavior that it's exactly. really difficult to resolve and I've actually so I've got my uh puppy at the moment Onyx who's like a shepherd mix and she's um probably the most prone to that kind of hunting behavior that a dog I've ever really had mm-hmm. and because I've seen that mistake over and over again where people have taken their dog to the woods and let them chase squirrels every day for a long period of time yeah. um I've been really con like conscious of trying to avoid that but actually what I've realized is it's actually kind of more difficult than I thought it would be because even though I can not take her to the woods and not let her take uh, chase squirrels a lot doesn't matter where I go there are always birds you know um and occasionally we I think it's happened twice now she's seven months old and I probably had her from uh like roughly three months old actually just before four months old because of the importation rules. Does mm-hmm. figures happened twice now where she's chased deer, you know, where I've just been walking and all of a sudden a deer comes out of the bush, you know, and, and that's a really hard thing to prevent. Yeah. Um, obviously I don't want her to have that experience, but it's very like, even with being really conscious about trying to prevent it from happening, you still get surprised and there are birds everywhere. I live where I live anyway, you can go to any field and, you know, you might have crows or, like, uh, seagulls or something. Um, so, yeah, just uh, what, what are your thoughts on on, on that?
1: Um, can you tell me again what breed she is?
0: Yeah, so um, she's she's essentially, it's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a long story, but essentially she's part of an outcrossing project. So she's a German Shepherd, but she also has Belgian Malinois in her. uh uh-huh. And she probably has Dutch Shepherd in her as well. Okay. Um, and visually, she just looks like a black mountain <laughs> Okay, cool.
1: That is a super cool mix. I have to look up a, a picture on social media. <laughs> no problem. Um, I can tell you that um, it, it totally makes sense to prevent this from happening for the first two years um, because it is rehearsed behavior. But on the other hand, there is also genetically anchored behavior. And if your dog is um, made for hunting, for example, a hound or um, a beagle, a beagle is a hound, (laughs) Um, basically a hunting dog, a gun dog breed, um, then it will come out eventually. You cannot totally prevent genetics. And most of the time it happens around uh, one and a half years that there is suddenly the snap and then the dog is on fire. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about um, a shepherd type, Um, they are really trainable um, by simply telling them to stop. So this is what I do with a shepherd that comes into my training and that has uh, developed a taste for chasing because normally they do not track so much. They do not, uh, look, look around for scent like a spaniel or something. They see something. And then when they see something, they chase and then it's fine for them normally. So you can really, really get a step into a foot into that door by uh, stopping, stopping from a distance, uh, stopping the chase. So this is quite easy <laughs> my background
0: just, is in like yeah. uh lots of engagement training lots of look at me yeah. training so my instinct is and you're right she's very visual so for me yeah. my instinct is to go to look at me training so i just teach her when she sees a bird pay attention to me yeah uh, exactly yeah, so that's... again, with
1: a shepherd type, you have to be really careful with engagement training because a lot of shepherds are over trained in this. I, 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 I'm sure you know about this, but I will tell it for your audience. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so they do not go out and train with the uh, shepherds, border collies, Austrian shepherds, German shepherds, mm. Malinois, uh, super, super much engagement because then they will get this type of dog that does not engage with the environment anymore. And this is mm. very Uh, I don't like this very much because um, a dog needs to sniff and engage with the environment in a healthy way in order to be able to decompress. And uh, especially those breeds that were Uh, bread for cooperation with us then they tend to not do this anymore and it's not a nice thing to to watch so um i would go for a healthy mix of letting her engage but then uh, letting her engage with the environment but then every now and then i and i only mean maybe every 50 meters or something do a check-in with you and um i would work massively on stopping a chase or interrupting the chase this, this isn't actually experience. like a massive
0: problem for me I was just bringing yeah. it up as an example but um oh, it's yeah. actually really interesting to get your perspective on that because I think I fall somewhere in the middle when it comes to engagement versus like engagement with the owner versus engagement with the environment and allowing the dog to be a dog and sniff and that kind of stuff and it's actually an interesting conversation not one I planned I thought we were going to have but um because as someone that now has like a really energetic working dog if I go to the sports people super engagement don't let the dog engage with the environment at all it's all about engaging with you at all times essentially to to actually to such an extreme that I was actually kind of surprised like I was taken back when I had my dog because I didn't think I was like I mean I've written about engagement for years like I really didn't think I was like I thought I was more on that side of the spectrum (laughs) you know Mm. um uh so it's a real contrast like a real contrast in like culture um i think i fall somewhere in the middle because i really do value engagement with with me um but also i agree i want my dog to experience being a dog um so far as it's not problematic um so we tend to do like we go out and we do training and we also go out and we just do walks i mean obviously she has to behave well on the walks but uh but she doesn't have to like be super switched on. So I kind of focus more on like on and off switches, I guess.
1: Yeah, Uh, exactly. Yeah. So a healthy balance.
0: Um, Yeah. I, well, yeah, I think so. Uh, But that's just my two cents, I guess. Um, But I guess most dog owners actually, in my experience are more on the side of, Hey, I go out on a walk and I have my phone in my hand and they're not usually it's very rare that I would have, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with a dog owner where I'm like, you're doing too much with the dog. Not, normally that's a dog trainer thing. Like normally they're just going for a walk and they've got their phone out and they're not even paying any attention to the dog. And then these habits have developed because they thought it was cool that the dog was chasing the squirrel for the whole walk because the dog was going home tired and now it's causing problems
1: exactly so yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the point that people think oh that's nice um now that my dog is tired and yeah. i can go to work or do whatever and actually it forms a habit that is uh coming back to you and biting you
0: <laughs> yes yes so okay so we've started off we've uh spoke about prevention and management and then uh seeing the like prey so when you so when like from a training perspective, your dog sees the prey. What do you do at that point?
1: Well, um, it all starts um, with uh, structured training. So um, you cannot just send people out and tell them, uh, okay, now from today on, you train that your dog is standing instead of uh, chasing. So you need to to um, have several factors in mind and most crucial in anti-predation training um, when you build the behavior and it's not in place yet, that uh, there is enough space Space between yourself and between the wild animals. So it totally makes sense to um, train this first in a kind of controlled environment. And this is really tricky for anti-bredation training because we cannot just order a deer to this particular spot at three o'clock. So um, what I sometimes do is I take people to uh, wildlife parks and we start training there. The dogs know it's a different setting. So um, they learn pretty w- Quickly, that there is a fence between themselves and the the deer, but it's perfect to um, teach the dogs what we expect from them and teach people how to react. Because when they see a wild animal out there, they panic too because they need to get their dog back. And so it's it's a nice idea to have a kind of setup that the dog knows it's not the real stuff, but still we can practice until everybody has the skills in place and then we go outside and uh, we train this in a in a wild environment. And- you know, uh, a-
0: Actually, yes. Simone, it's just, I've just thought because we had a little technical issue there and we got cut off, I missed an important question because you said uh, with shepherds, actually, they don't tend to- be big issues with hunting you can kind of just like it's very easy to just stop um (laughs) does does that mean that predation substitute training is really only relevant for breeds that are super hunting driven
1: um the whole protocol yes so if you have a dog a gun dog that was made for hunting it's there in them and it's a talent that they have then you have to apply the full protocol and it's really work so never get a setter or pointer just because they look nice because you will have to put a lot of work in it um but uh, for other breeds that are not particularly made for hunting we have to look at the behavior and then sometimes we can just pick parts and I say, OK, for this dog, we pick out this component of the training and the rest you can just ignore. Um, and often then it's fine. So people already see an improvement and uh, often they are already OK with it. Um, if you want to start the whole protocol, super, you can still do it. It's just beneficial for you and your dog because the, the third part or the third component of it is games that you play with your dog to give them an outlet. Um, I think this is super important because the dogs want to perform this behavior. It's something that they really enjoy and uh, it, you can do this together with them. So the dog learns that you are actually a hunting partner and instead of being the nagging factor behind the dog, always interrupting, you can be a kind of hunting partner that enables them hunting success. And this, of course, is a super bonding activity as well.
0: Yeah. yeah okay interesting so if you have a breed that's maybe not a dog that's been bred specifically for hunting then uh then it's more a case of picking out parts of the protocol that are maybe applicable as opposed to running all the way through it unless you're just really passionate <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly
1: yeah
0: okay interesting so uh, we spoke a little bit about standing or when they see the prey and then you kind of alluded to like the predatory uh, sequence as well. So obviously you have the different parts of that chain. Oh, you'll probably remember it a lot better than me, but you have like the stalking and the chasing. Yeah. And then it's actually an interesting concept because there is kind of some debate even about like what parts should be within it. Um, but um, So you in, in the book, you have games that are specific to different parts of the sequence, is that right?
1: Yes, exactly. So I call it the dog's hobbies, Um, and not every person enjoys every hobby, (laughs) and this is the same with our dogs. So we look at uh, breeding, what were they bred to perform, but uh, also for mixed breeds or for dogs that do not really fulfill their breeding standards. Um, This is why we have to look at the individual dog, and then we pick out the games that are suitable for this dog. Um, Yeah
0: one of the questions I had for you was what about breeds that aren't bred to be particularly cooperative with people in their hunting sequence? So for example, um, like sight hounds or terriers where this isn't like a spaniel, like with a spaniel in gun dog training, they're bred to be able to be interrupted by people through the sequence. And that's something that we've bred for, for generations and generations versus with like, a sighthound or a terrier, there's never really a time where you have to stop the dog from chasing. So it's exactly. not something that we've really bred the dog to do. So yeah. I'm curious uh, how that interacts within the system.
1: Yeah, and this is really something that a lot of people are not aware of, that uh, it, the dog does not have the genetic disposition to be stopped because it was never needed. It's the same with uh, loose leash walking. If you have, for example, a Podenco in Spain, They just uh, have you ever seen them hunt? It's so funny because they just run around and they hop and they jump like rabbits and they flush the rabbits actually. But they have never ever been needed to to walk on a leash. They were just driven to this particular area. Then the car opens and they jump out and everybody's happy. So now these dogs come to our environment and they have to stay on the leash and it's a problem because the genetic Disposition of this dog does not have the information, oh, I have to adjust my pace to a slower human. (laughs) Um, And the same with stopping in the environment. It it was never needed. And uh, here, um, of course, you can train it, but then it's a learned behavior. It's harder to implement in a hound than in a a retriever who has to stop every time uh, um, because it has been bred in for for generations and of course here we go massively for teaching the dog to engage and do not um, roam too far stay close stay in your range of influence and uh, this is why i say you always have to look at the individual dog and then put emphasis on this part of the training
0: Oh, okay. So uh, with those breeds, it's still possible to get a result.
1: It is definitely. They are super intelligent and social beings, and uh, you can teach them a lot. But it might happen that at some times you get stuck in your training because there is a limit for this particular dog.
0: Okay. So with regards to that limit, um, you know, the obvious question is are there dogs where uh having control over the the predation is not possible
1: um i wouldn't put, put it like this because um this makes people think oh i don't get even started and uh, i think you might be amazed when you get started how far you can get with your dog but of course like in every training there is um, for some dogs a limit that you reach and where you get stuck and you can improve but uh yeah it, you can't guarantee 100% of training success. And it also is about expectation management. Um, if I have a, a sight hound, for example, and that has been used in Spain five years for hunting and now comes back to Germany and uh, in an area where there is a lot of um, bunnies <laughs> and then uh, the, 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 the owner says, oh, I want to have my dog off leash around those bunnies. I, I tell them it's not possible. You have mm-hmm. to find other... Training area or areas to walk your dog where the trigger is not there, and um, yeah, of course you have to talk about expectation from dog owners. But I think most dog owners, their expectation is even lower than what you can achieve. This is my personal experience. They are happy with little steps, and I say ah, we can go more. <laughs> there can be more.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's interesting for sure. Um, you know, I've had cases. Um, not maybe not so much dogs that I've worked with a huge amount, but dogs that I've known about, like, um, that have killed sheep and have seen, um, I've referred them to like really well-known and very, um, respected dog trainers. And they haven't had the results that they've wanted. Um, and, and not doing the training, the style that you're talking about, to be fair to you, just, you know, just, uh, and that's been quite, yeah, I don't know, quite an interesting experience for me because the client that I'm thinking of was someone that was super dedicated. So because I knew them, I knew it wasn't a case of like the dog owner not doing the work, which is oftentimes the first thing that's going to be brought up. When someone doesn't get success, well, maybe they're not putting enough work in. And I know that wasn't the case with this person. And they went to such good dog trainers and they kind of came to the conclusion eventually of just it came came to the point where they were just going to manage it. And I think that when I spoke to them, they kind of said, look, my only alternative, the only thing I haven't tried so far is to use the electric collar. And I don't really want to do that. So I'm just going to manage it moving forwards. Um but it was an interesting experience for me because I, yeah, it wasn't just like they'd gone to like some local trainer, they'd gone to the people at the top of the industry. So, yeah, Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. I'm very, um, I I have a lot of interest in the positive training uh, we can do for like predation style stuff, because I think, like I said, at the beginning of this podcast, it's a real hot topic. And also it's like, Almost like the last frontier, you know, I know you've kind of mentioned this, you know, where it's like it's it's something that in conversations with people that do use uh, more aversive methods. It's always the thing that's brought up first, you know, well, how do you how will you deal with a dog this this highly predatory? Um, mm-hmm. So when you're going through the predation substitute training, the other consideration we have to think about is time. You know, how long does it take to start seeing results with the dog? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's always, I think there is always going to be a comparison with e-collar training because, mm-hmm. the, because of that, because this is the, the last frontier. Yeah. Um, sure. So what are we talking about in terms of like, I guess I have to ask the hard question what we're what we talking about in terms of time and what we're we talking about in terms of efficacy, like how much, how often, like how fr- how much progress can we make with a dog um, and how frequently can we make progress with dogs?
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, with E. coli training, um, it, if it's done properly and it has to be done properly in order to be um, not cruel or less cruel, <laughs> Unethical, I don't know. So um, punishment needs to be hard and uh, it needs to be prompt in order to work. So we all know this from learning um, theory. And uh, if you want to apply this, you need to do it properly. So there needs to be one trial learning and then that's it. Of course, um, force free anti predation training is not like that. We don't go out one time and then the dog is fixed. So what we start with is always the engagement part and prevention part. And here I tell people to do this consistently on their walks for two weeks. And after two weeks, you should see massive improvement. If you don't see massive improvement, then you are doing something wrong. Or maybe um, we need to adjust training a little bit for your dog. So you don't need to train endlessly. Um, uh, even in force free and positive training, we need to see results. If we don't see results then something is going wrong and we need to check what is going wrong. So um, it totally depends on the dog are we and it totally depends on the um, uh, the the person who is training the dog and also it depends on the environment because um, we need to get in repetitions. And if I live in an area where I come across a deer every three months, then I don't get in the repetitions. Whereas people who live in an environment that is for them highly stressful because they see wildlife all the time for the training, it's much better because we get in the repetitions and um, it can be weeks. It can be months. It can be years. It depends on so many factors. I cannot Tell no, I know, that's the classic dog trainer yeah. issue. But um, uh, I can just tell you, if you don't see improvements, something's going wrong and you need to check back with your trainer because uh, training endlessly is frustrating for everybody. Um, can I give you more something more precise than that? Uh, poor. Uh,
0: if we did a study, if we did a st- you know, like there has been attempts to do studies <coughs> like this, but I don't it's think difficult.
1: they're
0: very... Uh, felt very well regarded, but like if you were to do a study where we were to compare predation substitute training versus e-collar training, what do you think that we would see?
1: Ah, That is such a difficult question because I cannot think of a setup that is, that might match uh, scientific criteria because in science it needs to be repeatable. And uh, the environment needs to be so controlled that everybody or another scientist can repeat the study in just the same way. And uh, how to meet this standard um, with positive training is difficult. I have never ever thought about this thoroughly. I'm not a scientist actually, but um, I think it's difficult. Hmm. I, 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 I maybe somebody else can come, you, come up with like, an do, idea about do you, this.
0: Do you think that we would see uh, that the the predation substitute training would be more effective or less effective, take longer, take less time? Um, Do you you have any inkling as to?
1: It takes longer. Of course it takes longer than, Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a quick fix. So, mm-hmm. um, if you want to go for a quick fix, mm-hmm. it's not banned in your country. Pff, I cannot keep you from using an e-collar. It is, of course, if yeah. it's done correctly, a quicker fix than positive mm-hmm. training.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just. I'm. I want to ask the questions that other people are gonna gonna want to know. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. And I, I, I'm sorry. I would give you a, a, a better a better answer than that if I had one.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah,
0: no, I think that's a pretty pretty good so I answer. I think it, we don't
1: we don't need I, the, the whole discussion about efficacy is not really getting the point because um it, it all comes down to an ethical question.
0: It all comes down to you It doesn't for do everyone that? though. That's the problem like it uh you know it, it it does for a lot of us but for a lot of people it doesn't, you know, for a lot of people um they don't see an issue with using the e-collar and yeah. so so it does become a question of efficacy. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Okay.
0: You but know, like it's not
1: a yeah. For me, it's not a question because yeah. it's banned here. So
0: yeah. And yeah. what what have you seen um, after the ban? Like what? Because we're in the situation now where there is talk of well, it seems like it's going to happen. It seems like e collars are going to be banned in the UK. Yeah. And a lot of there has been. A lot of people from the kind of balance training community will say, they will point to Germany and say, look, it didn't work in Germany. Like, so why would you ban it in other places? The e-collar ban didn't work. So I'm okay. curious, what are your experiences? Did it okay. work? Was it not effective?
1: What, what What do you What do you mean with it didn't work? Because it's not... Um, do you mean that people still use it secretly behind closed doors or...
0: Uh, yeah, it does. I mean, I assume that does happen, but I mean, do you have any idea? And I know this is... This is you know, this isn't backed up by anything but your own experience, but but, what is your experience? Are okay. people still using it a yeah. lot?
1: So when the ban happened, I think it was around 2006, 2007. I'm not sure about the date at the moment, um, but it is, has been quite a while now. And there was no social media back then. Um, it just happened. It was banned and that's it. And... Uh, I think the training industry has not been that developed by this time too. So, um, from my experience, since I have become a dog trainer in 2018, um, it is no issue. There, uh, we of course everybody knows that e-collars are still in use for some people. They can you can you can buy them legally over the internet. It's European law that they can be sold in Germany, but it's banned to use them, and it's even banned to put them on the dog. So um, yeah, and I know, and everybody knows that there are some trainers still out there who use them secretly. They would lose their license if it would become public, but I know that it happens. And I know that especially in sports where people go for competitions, e collars are still used. And I know that they are still used a lot in the hunters community. Uh, The training there is not very progressive. It's quite hard, even if, They choose not to use e collars the training is not nice. We have to say that we don't have just positive trainers in Germany. It's not like a pink world where everybody's nice to the dog. But I see for everyday regular dog owners that come to my pet dog school, it is not an issue. It's just not available. It's just not in their heads, and this is the nice thing, because I do not have to waste time and energy to convince people. It's just not an issue, and this is what I hope for for the UK, that it gradually becomes a thing that is a little bit, mm, yeah, you don't want to do that. It's behind closed doors. You don't talk about this. That's fine. Let's do this because you cannot convince everybody, but for the broad masses of dog owners, it's just not in their. In their thoughts, it's not
0: existent. So, are you yeah. uh, are you uh, someone that would get behind a ban? Then you would think that it would be a, a positive positive outcome.
1: I don't know. I'm a force-free trainer, so yes, of course, I do mm. not want two dogs to be punished and zapped <laughs> and shocked. Um, but <laughs> uh, I'm. It's not my country, so um I don't want to interfere <laughs> with recommendations of what to do. <laughs> I just observe from outside, <laughs> and what I think is. Um, what always strikes me is why are people so fixated on this particular issue with wild uh, with um, livestock? Because um, you stumble across wildlife all the time. You cannot avoid this. Wildlife is just everywhere. But you can totally avoid to stumble across sheep because mm-hmm. I've been to the UK multiple times, to the north, to the south, to the islands, and the, the sheep are in particular places if you drive across a cattle grid you know there might be sheep. If you cross a fence, then you know that I expect sheep to be there. If I open a gate and go through the gate, I have to expect livestock to be in this field. So why is this an issue? Why can you not just for this particular walk or this part of the walk put your dog on a leash and everybody's fine i think, so I don't, you know,
0: I, I think yeah. most instances of sheep chasing actually in my experience have been where people have been taken by surprise so i yeah. can share my own experience um i've had i've had a dog that i was walking chase sheep on one occasion because i was walking down a path and some a dog walker was coming the other way and i said to the dog walker are there any sheep ahead and he said no so i let the dog off I carry on walking and sure enough, there were sheep ahead and the dog chased after the sheep. Yeah. Thankfully, it didn't kill any sheep. But I think those kind of experiences in my the, my experience from talking to other dog owners, those are the kind of times when we do see sheep predation is when someone has been taken by surprise. They didn't expect yeah. sheep to be somewhere or in more extreme cases where the dog, they've actually been really far away from the sheep. But the dog has had a history of chasing sheep, and and basically tracks down the sheep. You know, um, you know, looks for that opportunity to chase sheep. So maybe they've ran a mile or two miles to to actually find where the sheep are and then chase them.
1: Okay, but to be honest, if you have such a dog, you shouldn't be off leash anyway. <laughs> yeah,
0: but these are, the, and I'm I'm not pro e collar by any means, but I, I just as a podcast host, I feel like a responsibility to it ask the hard questions. And I think that there are people even within the kind of force free sphere that feel like, like take more of a Lima approach, which is, you know, like let's do the predation substitute training. Let's do this for however long, let's try and see some results. But at the end of the day, if we don't see results and the person's still not able to let the dog off lead, uh, you know, months down the line, then maybe we would refer to, to an e-collar training. So I think even there is debate, even within people that are, you know, ethical dog trainers that want to, you know, do the best thing for the dog.
1: I, I wouldn't put it on my dog. I would put my dog on a leash and I would try to um, go to places where I do not find sheep. Um, mm-hmm. in, in, in Britain, it's, it's quite, you have those wonderful estates, you you have those parks, those gardens.
0: So yeah, I, I get, it, it get it. I get n- it. Yeah. It's never on the table for you at all under no, any circumstances. No, no,
1: it's not. So I just observe this uh, whole discussion from an outside, and I see people going crazy about it. And I think, well, wait for ten years, and it will not be an issue anymore because people get used to it. They get used to it. They get used to, get used to doing other training methods, aversive. People or, or aversive measures will change because uh people will always find a way. Um But you you
0: mentioned yourself earlier, like there are cases that you've had where the dog has not got to the point where I assume that they could be off lead. You know, like you said about having a um I can't remember if you said a you said was a dog that had chased for five years or something like that. Yeah, but then
1: a rescue yeah, dog. And yeah. um yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't see a problem in this, because even when you use um, punishment-based training, you will not be 100% sure that Mm -hmm. it will work forever. Um, Punishment wears off. So Mm -hmm. even though you got it in place, it doesn't mean that you still have it in place in um, half a year. Then mm. your dog will try again. The temptation mm. is too big, and we know. Mm, I've from-
0: seen that myself. Yeah, yeah. That's a valid so- criticism of e-collar training that gets uh, swept under the carpet by people that are, that are e-collar trainers. I have yeah. seen that myself, where the e-collar has been effective with with dogs, but then six months down the line, it fails essentially. And, and exactly,
1: yeah. yeah. If if punishment worked in psychology, we know uh, this from humans as well. Uh, everybody would stop whatever they do, uh, stealing or (laughs) robbing or whatever, after the first punishment, but they don't. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's the same with dogs, because temptation is still there and it works for a while. And then the dogs will say, "Okay, let's try again. And it works one time because you forgot to recharge the battery. People also get slack. And don't have their gear in place yeah. and then it all starts again and uh, then you have to, to apply it again so mm-hmm. your dog can still kill sheep and you are not 100 sure that uh, it will stop forever if it was like you push it the button one time and then your dog will forever be off leash anywhere i would say okay let's go for it but it doesn't work like that mm-hmm. And what also happens that is, uh, people love their dogs. They don't want to hurt them, and then the they do to. not they do not apply the punishment as hard as they need to. And what we see is a spiral because they start too soft. They don't want to hurt the dog. Oh my gosh, I can't do that. And then they they push and they feel bad, but it wasn't wasn't enough. So next time they have to do it harder and harder. And yeah, so there is no hundred percent guarantee. It's a living being.
0: Mm-hmm, I totally agree. Let's change subject. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask. Yeah.
1: It is interesting,
0: interesting, and it's probably I, I, you probably get fed up of it because it's very, <laughs> it's very tied into your subject, your niche. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's the questions that people are going to ask. So, yeah, um, sure. I want to talk about some other things as well. You know, one of the big things that gets brought up with dogs that have these kind of uh, predatory you know uh behaviors is okay we need to give the dog an outlet Mm -hmm. let's take them to agility let's take them to uh whatever it is let's take let's take them to classes and do and do activities with them however i've heard you i've heard some of your uh ideas about this so i just wanted you to kind of elaborate is that a good idea is that something that that will be helpful
1: If your dog enjoys doing agility and you enjoy it, you can of course do that, but it's not an outlet for their predatory needs. It's like, uh, I compare it if you have a a child that loves drawing and it has a special talent for drawing and uh, you say, no, you can't draw. I don't like this hobby. Let's do whatever, cycling (laughs) or something like else. And you take them to cycling and uh, you didn't give you give you give the child something to do but you didn't give them an outlet for their talent and it's the same with the dogs so um you should definitely look what your dog's talents are their hobbies are what they enjoy doing and then um it's a real need oriented uh activity for them you can still do agility <laughs>
0: if you enjoy but just do dog it dog just but but what you're saying is do agility because you want to do agility don't, exactly. don't do agility because you think it's going to solve your predation no, issue
1: it will not solve any predation issue
0: i love that <laughs> <laughs> so this,
1: I can, this time i can say 100
0: <laughs> i love that because that's that's a uh, myth busting on a on a big scale this is something that gets brought up a lot and it's something that i've questioned myself in my own i don't know about you but as a dog trainer sometimes i'm going around driving and stuff and i think about something and then i'm like hang on that doesn't <laughs> really make sense and i and i've and that's when i i've been thinking of myself and to hear you say it is really validating so <laughs> yeah so there is a there's a bit of myth busting there um yeah. do, do agility because you want to do agility uh, don't do it because it's going to solve your predation issue so another uh another one rabbit hole sorry <laughs> another rabbit oh ironically but because of the subject oh yeah right um, <laughs> um what about other areas where we see similar behavior such as chasing cars mm-hmm.
1: yeah so, yeah sorry
0: no I was, is it? Is it something where this training is applicable or, or not
1: uh it depends um if your dog sees There is actually a quite good indicator. Um, Sometimes the dog sees something and thinks it's something to chase and chases off. And then after a couple of meters, the dog realizes, oh, it's not that. (laughs) I had this experience with Malinka again in the beginning when she, uh, she was chasing off. And thought it was a cat, but in fact it was a dachshund. De- de- what is what's it called in English? Um, yeah, de- the dachshund. De- yeah, dex okay, dex, yeah. <laughs> in German. Okay. And uh, after a couple of meters, she realized, oh gosh, this is a dog, and she stopped. And she was like, she was really embarrassed. You could see that in her face. She came back and she said, like, I don't want to meet him. I don't want to meet him. He's not the cat that I expected. And uh, when you have this, and your dog mistakes something for prey. Of course, it's predatory behavior, but I think what you rather refer to is you lead, for example, the typical dog that comes always in my mind is a border collie here. Uh, You lead them across um, along a street and the cars come from behind and the dog lunges after the cars, border collie or not. Um, In this case, it's most of the time not predatory behavior. It uh, means that uh, the dog wants to chase something away rather than... You know, in predation, the dog always aims to bridge the gap. They want to get closer, whereas here we want the dog wants the car to go away. So they chase them away, and uh, the emotion behind this is often fear, um, because in the past, at some point, there has been a startle. Um, the dog was uh, startled by a car, and now they are afraid of the car and they go for a fight. Um, response to chase it away whereas in predation it is never fear-based predation we have some mixed feelings um, about prey animals that might fight for themselves and the dog might be afraid of them too but the initial emotional response in the dog is not fear it's excitement it's rage it's going forward Um, it's not oh gosh go away
0: yeah i might have to yeah. um uh, take it to like a deep place here. so like in the border collie for example oftentimes mm-hmm. we see um <laughs> oh my that sometimes in border collies we see the the herding of cars right yeah. or that's what mm-hmm. we're talk. like oftentimes people talk about it's the herding behavior that's kind of misplaced onto cars do you exactly. agree with that
1: yes definitely too uh,
0: but but Actually, people will also say that herding is just a adaptation to of the predatory sequence.
1: It is uh, an adaptation of the chase, but still, I, uh, my my um, take on it is that there is this uh, underlying fear response in the dog, so they go into the chase into even the herding with herding behavior. Yeah, sure. Um, you still
0: the, would say that that's there's an underlying fear in those dogs.
1: I think it's mixed emotions. Maybe, Um, but I think the underlying and predominant emotion here is a fear response. But anyway, it doesn't matter. I wouldn't go for predation substitute training, no matter what the response is. um, Can
0: you talk about what you would do or is that actually just not your thing?
1: um, No, it's not my thing. (laughs) (laughs) I I, think that's fair enough. (laughs) I still uh, still train this with dog owners, of course, and uh, we go for um, disengagement. Mm -hmm. um frequent disengagement so kind of look at that approach dog looks at it disengages and we go for desensitization and um yeah that's basically what i do with those dogs
0: yeah one of the um things with predatory substitution training is as you said yourself it's quite um it's almost a different way of walking a dog from what i can tell you know it's like um it's almost like a game your system is kind of like a, a game that you play with the dog yeah. whenever the opportunity yeah. presents itself yeah what do you say to people that just say hey, I, don't want, I don't want to play these games with my yeah. dog i just i just don't want him to do it
1: yeah <laughs> again customer compliance and uh, and, yeah. and energy that you want to put into training you have to want this but i can only recommend starting it because it changes the way that you see your dog and you will change the way of you of how you walk your, walk your dog but you will not recognize this after a couple of weeks, months, because it will become second nature. It's nothing that is, it sounds super exhausting, like, oh, you have to be alert all the time and you have to do this and that. No, it's not like that. You just get started and then eventually you grow into this. And once you you have become familiar with that, you cannot become unfamiliar with it again, is is what I mean. Um, So of course there are days that I do not want to, Work with my dogs on walks, so I just put them on a leash, and uh, maybe we don't go into the forest, but we walk through the neighborhood.
0: And, and, and how? Well, yeah. I was gonna—that was kind of where I was going with this. As well, how much control do you have over the game? For example, let's say I go on a walk and I—I just—I'm just not feeling it today, and my dog sees a crow. Do I have to go through the, the game or can I just say, hey, not today. I'm not doing that today.
1: Oh, I, I do this all the time. I say, oh, come, come on, not today. And because my dogs know that they have this outlet regularly, on a regular basis, they're fine with that. They they might say, but, and I say, nope, not today. And then they ah. Okay, oh, fantastic. It. So it it is really becoming better, even in those situations. Um, and and of course, you have to have emergency tools in place, like a, a move on or a come back from this. So it's not all about indulging into predatory behavior all the time. There needs to be a healthy balance, of course. Mm,
0: interesting. Yes. And just is? Are there any prey animals where you have to make any adaptations? Yeah. Or is it all pretty much the same, whether it's a crow or a sheep or a deer? Is it all pretty much the same or does it vary depending on what animal it is?
1: Yeah, for, of course. We uh, There are a lot of variations. For example, if the animal is very swift, uh, turns up quickly um, in front of your dog, for example, rabbits or squirrels. And uh, I would never ask my dog to stop and stand and watch this zigzagging in front of them because they are not super human they are not super dogs um uh, they cannot manage um so if it's swift if it's close i always go for oh come back let's go into the other direction quickly um for a u-turn for a recall or something like this um if uh, it is a deer or grazing somewhere then we can stop and can watch it um, because it's not moving swiftly so um yeah you always have to think about your dog's what is, it, what is it, what is it capable today in this particular moment? Because maybe it was a stressful day for your dog too, and they don't have the impulse control anymore. Then I go out of the situation. Uh, and of course you have to adapt for um, animals that live, for example, in your yard or in your household. I never do predation substitute training with uh, guinea pigs in a cage or something like this, because um, we, it's not avoidance training. You don't, change the perception that your dog has. Your dog still sees them as prey and you don't want that in your house. So uh, for genie pigs as well, we go for desensitization and there are experts out there actually that um, focus on this subject. So I normally refer people over there they have wonderful protocols in place, how to um, make your cat and dog become friends or, mm. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, how interesting. That's really good. Um, yeah. And the other thing I wanted to touch on, and I was hoping to get to this earlier, but we kind of, I forgot about it, is uh, <laughs> the kind of the history of this is actually kind of interesting because we mm-hmm. were talking about e-callers earlier. And one thing that this scene, now I don't know if this is a direct correlation, but it seems like from an outsider looking in, this kind of came about from the e-collar band. Like this is something that this is like a positive news story out of that. Like it seems like this was developed as a consequence of not being able to use the Mm -hmm. e-collars in training. Is that right?
1: To some extent, well, the the first trainers who came up with this uh, with a structured protocol in Germany, um, they came up before the E. collar ban. But I think I assume that it got a massive boost after the ban. And now we have several specialists here in Germany. Um, they all have their own little uh, turns on this program. It's not a standardized thing. So everybody uh, adjusts it to their own training style. And it's, uh, it's beautiful to watch this um, and learn from so many other people also that have massive experience in this field. So I hope for this to happen in, in the UK or in America as well, that people develop to their own styles and needs and their clients' needs, of course. Yeah.
0: Uh, is, and and as an English speaker, we or a lot of us kind of assume that, that you came up with this, but actually this is something No, that's... I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it has, has been going on in Germany for a while yes, exactly. um, and it actually I don't it, it's kind of like when I heard that it kind of opened my eyes a little bit and I started thinking well what about other languages maybe other uh there are maybe there are ideas in other languages that we're missing out on because we yep. only speak English exactly. um, yeah. so it's really fascinating that actually uh in Germany you created this whole protocol which is really fascinating and we, it took a little while for that to kind of translate.
1: Mm, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah,
0: just really fascinating uh, tidbit. And you know what? I know this, I'm, I'm a little bit scatty today. I'm all over the place. But when you, we were talking about agility, not being an outlet, what about for those, and I know this is kind of like borderline, is this your subject or not? <laughs> but what about um, with those dogs that have herding behavior? I know you have Australian Shepherds when we we're seeing um, herding behavior in inappropriate places, agility might not be a good outlet or an outlet for that specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what about people that actually go and do herding with a dog, you know, go and, and actually herd the dog with sheep or, or whatever else yeah. is, is that, is that a more appropriate outlet?
1: Yes. And I hear, hear this question uh, a lot and it's an important question Um Yes, it's a good outlet to do with your dog what they were bred for. If you don't have sheep, you can still go for, I, I learned this nice little game sheep balls that we don't have in Germany from the UK. Okay, okay. Um, but the, in, the the question is a little bit more interesting even when it comes to other hobbies that we regard as maybe not beneficial. For example, if you go cursing with a hound, a lot of people are afraid to do that because they think the dog, um, rehearses this curse this chasing behavior and they don't do it with their dogs but i know a lot of i, I don't know have sighthounds but i know though i know some german trainers who specialize in anti-predation training with side hounds, and they actually take their dogs to cursing um where they follow this fake rabbit as an outlet and uh, the dog can totally learn that now here on this In this environment, in this, uh, what's it called, cursing arena, area, whatever. Sure, sure. Yeah, we do this and we can chase and it's a fun game, but when we are out in the forest at home, we don't do it. So the dogs are so clever and so intelligent, you should not underestimate them. Um, And giving your dog an outlet for what they were bred originally to do is, it can't be wrong. I say that. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe there's a case where it's wrong, but I don't know. Of any.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's a great idea. And uh, a yeah. shout out to Kay Lawrence, because I think that's her game, the balls. sheep Balls. yes.
1: Balls. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. OK, that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, so where can people find out more about you? And I think you have a really cool course coming up, right?
1: Yes, exactly. So it's really cool. <laughs> so first of all, I'm on social media on all the regular platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and a little bit TikTok. I'm getting used to TikTok now, and it's still not my thing. Mm. Um, you can find me at As Predation Substitute Training, and then I, I'm I'm hopefully come up. Um, I also have a website, Predation Substitute and we are going to launch uh, a course that I'm very excited about, which is uh, for dog guardians. What Owners, um, but it goes really, really deep into the subject because until now I only had live courses that I still have. But um, so many people uh, wanted to join these courses, and we were always booked. And I don't have that much time to do a lot of live courses because I have a small daughter. And um, this is why I said, okay, we need to set up a self-learning course where you have all all the tools that you need um, to. Solidly learn this technique from from scratch, and uh, yeah, it will come out in uh, July. Uh, no, sorry, August. <laughs> August. Yeah. yeah. Oh,
0: fantastic! And they can find out more about that on your website, right?
1: On my website, it's called okay. Call of the Chase. So okay. We found a little pun here,
0: okay, fantastic. and uh,
1: it it will be very comprehensive, very in depth, and it gives you all the tools that you need um to to walk uh, to work through this program with your dog.
0: Fantastic, and I'll make sure those links are in the show notes as well. Well, awesome. thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much, Nick. It was a pleasure. It was a very funny conversation because we had so much technical issues going on here. Yeah, don't tell them minutes. that. Don't tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Super, thank you. Thanks for checking out that podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. It was really great to have an opportunity to talk to Simone. And just before you go, don't forget, I'm running a webinar on August the 9th on puppy selection and training. You can find the links to sign up for that in the show notes. It's really inexpensive and it's going to be a lot of fun. It's the first webinar I've taught publicly for maybe ever I, I, it's a uh, yeah so it's going to be it's going to be good fun and I hope you can join me the other event we're running here in Bristol England is an introduction to bike drawing with Cat Le Chevalier on October the 7th make sure you get your tickets for that because the tickets are limited and uh, yeah so you don't want to miss out on that you can get those tickets at houndplus.com that's h-o-u-n-d p-l-u-s dot com click on the events tab and then you'll see the event and you can sign up for that so yeah thanks so much for joining me and i'll see you in the next episode